0: I think there's a level of self-awareness that, that must be possessed by every artist. Who am I hurting by doing this? Where's my perspective in this? And and you really have to you have to deconstruct yourself a little bit in order to arrive at not objectivity but at fairness.
1: everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Jeff McGregor, who is a writer-at-large for Smithsonian. His journalism has appeared in the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, The New Yorker, ESPN, Esquire, Men's Journal. He's written one of the best boxing profiles I've ever read about Don King. His fiction has showed up in Esquire, Story. He's done books. Prior to his writing career, he was in show business and was the host of The New Dating Game, I started off this conversation with something Jeff wrote about his late father. Uh, For the New York Times, he wrote an obituary in 1996 about McLean Stevenson, who was a co-star on one of the most successful TV shows in history, M.A.S.H., and it begins by parsing the term biological father and how it's once evocative and evasive. And uh, my bigger brother, Troy. Um, we had different biological fathers and not only has he never met him but never wanted to meet him didn't want to meet somebody who would offer clues into who they were what what DNA could illuminate and Jeff went a different path and uh, it's a really powerful piece and it also informed for me potentially what makes Jeff as a person and as a writer at once available and yet mysterious and enigmatic. Um, He is one of the most interesting people that I've ever met. He talked to me via Skype, and even though he knew we weren't filming this, he showed up in a suit. I don't think I've ever seen him not wearing an immaculate suit, (laughs) and he had a sense of humor about it when I brought it up. But um, Jeff is somebody who I think has been a mentor and uh, wants to help a lot of young writers. He was that for me some years ago when I first reached out to him. He's just always caring and in your corner and supportive. And yet to focus the attention on him here with the conversation, uh, I got more than I expected and I knew he was going to show up. But uh, it's like a talented Mr. Ripley who is not cheating anybody it's just they're so complex it's like what hadley ernest hemingway's first wife said about ernest my husband is somebody with so many sides they defy geometry that is the best way i can think to distill what makes jeff one of my favorite writers and and one of the most interesting people i've come across so i hope you enjoy this conversation with jeff mcgregor Listeners, I'm sure, can already sense the suit and tie. So,
0: I believe they can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have had such an interesting experience going through your work and your story. Um, I want to clarify. Can I talk to you about anything that you've written?
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, you can talk to me about anything. You can talk to me about stuff I haven't written. Ask me anything. Because it seems to
1: me you're such an enigmatic character in so many ways, and yet there's so much signal to you at the same time that it. I, I was thinking you've written a book about NASCAR, which is compared to Travels with Charlie on the Road. It's really about America as much as it's about the specific subject matter. Don King, hobos, lionfish the heavyweights of sports writing, the fawns, the importance of the fawns on Happy Days. You, in 2009, in response to Dwight Howard uh, saying that God is the reason why you should bet on the Orlando Magic versus the Lakers, became a ventriloquist for God to respond to him. <laughs> Which I think, I, I don't know that I've ever read any writer with the audacity, and who pulls it off, the voice of God. Um, But the thing that really jumped at me where I think I want to start was what you wrote for the New York Times after your father's death. Okay, that's a
0: place to start.
1: Yeah, just so it's a light beginning, you know. I I bring that up because... uh, my, I have two brothers, both of them are half brothers, and they have just gone up to visit my eldest brother, Attila's biological father, who's now been diagnosed with cancer throughout his body. They've sought to have uh, a doctor be in a position for euthanizing him when the pain is too much. Um, the morphine has taken the pain down from a 10 to a 7, And my middle brother has never met his biological father, who was a result of an affair with my mother's first husband. So when I was reading about you processing your relationship with your dad, uh, it really made me think a lot about these brothers I've had and the the simultaneous feeling of being an only child because I'm such a distance from them age-wise, while also feeling very much the part of the youngest in a family of three. And then I hear about how you at 17 were forced to reconcile a dream that you could barely hold on to in terms of identifying whose shoulders you were on. Suddenly you figured out who it was and and sought that person out. So
0: could we start there? Sure. Um, It's a fairly long, complex chain of genealogy to get to the moment when I write the thing for the new york times the short version of which is that my biological father and my mom split up when i was three and i really didn't have any memory of him so from the age of three until 17 uh i was kind of in the dark i i uh of uh Pictures I would see in a dream, for example, um, I would see a very tall man carrying me on his shoulders, and I had a view from where I sat on his shoulders, but I couldn't see his face. Uh, I had a very distinct memory, which was from earliest infancy, of a weather vane on top of a carriage house, which turned out to be the place that my parents first lived when they brought me over to the hospital. But none of that was known until much later. So I'm reintroduced to the guy at at 17. And he turns out to be this television actor who's very famous at the time and had sort of a weird uh, checkered career of his own, McLean Stevenson. Uh, Super funny. Not a super great guy. Struggled. He struggled his own struggle and was married three times and in each marriage had a child. And I am... Uh, 12 years older than my second half sister and 24 years older than my third. Uh, his third child, my second half sister. And we were all, you know, spread out geographically. And so I had this very spotty relationship between the age of 17 with him until I was in my early 30s, at which time he very suddenly passed away. He'd gone in for a fairly routine surgery and uh, had a heart attack in recovery, and so it was sort of a shock. He was he was uh, sixty six, and I had left the career I was in and had begun writing, and I was actually at. Ohio State. I was in the MFA program at Ohio State when he died. And I'd been writing for a a while already for the New York Times. I I was an essayist. I'd begun my career as a humorist, writing very short pieces, bite-sized pieces. And those were successfully getting longer and longer. And every year the New York Times magazine um, ends the year with sort of an obituary issue where there are lots and lots and lots of essays written about uh, people of note who passed away that year, and they asked me if I'd write about McLean, and and so I did. And I didn't really know the guy that much. I could only write about my relationship to him, which, as you correctly identify, is sort of the heart of every narrative arc between fathers and sons from the beginning of time. Yeah. And that weird dynamic between siblings of I have a relationship with him, I have a relationship with her, my relationship with him or her is better than yours is, more genuine, more satisfying. It becomes a a club that siblings beat each other over the head with. It also becomes an occasion for depression and sadness and regret and self-recrimination and That's common to every one of us. I mean, every one of us in a really dynamic relationship with our parents, whether we admit to it or not. And so that was sort of a, a, and I'll tell you this, here's a family secret about that. I wrote that piece, which to me was was very uh, emotionally neutral. There's nothing accusatory in it, simply stated the fact that he did this. And I have, I don't, I had no anger about him divorcing my mom, and my mom not angry about it. All worked out for the best. And I have to tell you, my little half-sister was really upset about it. Huh. She, like, and I, I guess, it's it, again, it's, it's not evidence of anything except that that dynamic is so personal and is strained through the lens of our individual needs in such a way that you can't predict how somebody else gonna respond to it. But it's all, just to go back to writing for a second, it's all of a piece with the weirdness of my career.
1: Well, that's what I was wondering, because it felt like a kind of Rosetta Stone to, when you say that biology is more powerful than biography, <clears throat> it's a very interesting thing as you're, you're talking. I mean, you had this beautiful turn of phrase, uh, guilt by association without the you. and... <clears throat> You're seeing somebody who has the brains to, to go to Yale, is himself, you know, a very thoughtful person who becomes noteworthy in show business with this beloved show, MASH. Um, I remember, certainly remember it as a kid, and the final episode of that was one of the biggest events in television history at the time. And then your father has a, as you say, quite a mixed career where, where he endured some real hardships toward the end some some persecution from the industry. And I mean, maybe I'm oh, putting it too.
0: That, a lot of it's self-inflicted. I mean, a lot of that mm-hmm. is uh, vanity and hubris in the way that he was, just to put my critics hat on for a second, a tremendous ensemble player in a tremendous ensemble setting. Yeah. and And coming out of that, I think his insecurity and vanity sort of drove him toward wanting to be um, more of a star than he was and sort of extend himself out beyond where he might normally have landed. Now, the truth is that on the one hand, this is 74, 75 in there, he's substituting uh, regularly for Johnny Carson. He's very funny and uh, quick witted and charming and makes sense as a late night guy if he wanted to do that but that sort of never gelled for him and it became instead this series of sort of um badly done sitcoms like hello larry or condo or whatever and the truth is that back in that universe and it's hard to remember it but it was three networks and one sort of independent every city and um, a network audience, successful network audience, I'm talking about, say, the last episode of MASH or the, the episode in which McLean Stevenson um, playing Henry Blake dies. You know, a, a normal weekly audience for a show like that might be 40 million people. Right. Um, now, a great audience for a huge breakout hit might be two million
1: Amazing. Just because
0: we have entertainment across this different set of technology. But at the time, he was a guy who was very much sought after by the network, who could never recreate and I don't know why, who could never recreate the level of affection or comic excellence that he'd been able to lay hands on doing that.
1: Right. And
0: so that just happened and then after a while you become Less employable again because in a three channel universe, there aren't that many opportunities, right? Um, I would look at somebody, um, t- take a guy that, that McLean and I both knew, Harvey Corman. Harvey,
1: oh, I love Harvey Corman. Oh. Harvey
0: understood exactly what it was that Harvey does well, huh. Harvey didn't uh suffer the same professional fate. In his, in his wake. And he had a great understanding of what he did well, as did another little member of that group, Tim Conway.
1: Oh, my favorite.
0: Exactly. So these are all guys who hung out together and, and sort of, uh, you know, they played golf. they they go out to Balboa Park and play golf together. Um, and I, was, I would occasionally tag along as a, as a terrible college kid vain and loud and uh with a hitch in my swing and i would go like all of these guys but it's like a comedy clinic you really learn uh, firsthand how people are funny and what they do to make themselves funnier and i think McLean has got tangled up in his own insecurity and and so again to bring this back to writing i had been i was in show business i started um in television 1975 and I worked in television through 1993. And I, I, my last hurrah in show business was I had a development deal with Paramount. And I was always going to be the next late night guy.
1: Yeah.
0: And never quite, never quite got there. But I had this development deal with Paramount. I had a, an office on the lot. And a development deal is essentially the studio's way of paying you not to go to work for someone else. <laughs> not that interested in anything you're doing, but I had a, uh, an office in the old writer's building uh, to orient you. It was the, the Hans Dreyer building right across the street from Stage 18, okay. where they shot Sunset Boulevard, the scene where DeMille comes out of the studio to look at Gloria Swanson's car. Um, and at the time, they were shooting Star Trek so my office was right behind LeVar Burton's trailer. So I had nothing to do all day. They just paid me not to do anything. I wrote a white paper for the studio about um, the Arsenio Hall show. And I was bored. I was bored all day. And I'd sit there and I'd go to lunch in the commissary. And I'd, I'd uh, come back to the office and I'd take a nap. And that was my day. I had a parking spot a lot. That was the... Mm. That was as far up the ladder as I ever got. So I was so bored, I started writing little casual humor pieces for the LA Times. Hmm. Like 500 word, you know, zany little casuals, like the shouts and murmurs uh, in the New York, that kind of stuff. And in uh, February of 93, I submitted over the transom a piece to the New York Times. Uh, it was sort of a funny take on a computer program that writes love poetry <laughs> yeah called uh, oh, LoveMaker version 3.1 and it got a lot of attention I was really shocked I got I was getting phone calls from Random House do you want to do a book blah 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 hmm. and what happened was that I saw the immediacy and autonomy of writing <clears throat> Versus the endless waiting and endurance it required in show business to put together this huge collaboration to make a show. Mm-hmm. I could write a thing and only my thumbprints were on it. Nobody else had to be involved. Whereas producing a television show, you got to find 200 other people to work on it and $10 million to fund it. Right. And it turned out to me in my early 30s that that was a much more satisfying way to live. So uh, the next summer, I went to Yale, did a writer's workshop in Yale in that summer. And I went there and I studied with some folks and I never went back. I literally I, I moved to a farm in Pennsylvania and I wrote for a year. I, I heated the place by burning, you know, short story manuscripts in the potbelly stone. I wrote a lot of essays about technology and entertainment for the New York Times. And that was sort of my apprenticeship. But then after a year of that, I was offered the fellowship at Ohio State. And so I was in school, I was the fellow in the MFA program, uh, but I had a column at the same time in Los Angeles Magazine. And I was uh, stunting uh, essays for the New York Times. And uh, eventually, you know, that led me back to New York. And the big transition, the thing I look at is a big transition, if you look at the early 90s, I'm writing short humor pieces. If you look at the, uh, the late 90s, including the piece about McLean, I'd begun to write longer and I wasn't worried about being funny. Yeah. And the very first big piece I did for Sports Illustrated. Uh, which was about a rattlesnake hunt in Oklahoma. I was I was mentored through the thing by my editor there, a guy named Bob Rowe, who gets all the credit and blame for my career subsequent to that. Hmm. And I I I kept I kept emailing him saying I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what I'm doing. He said, Well, just don't stop writing. Just keep writing until you can't write anymore. Hmm. So I wrote this thing and I filed it. It was thirteen thousand words long because I, I was. I was too stupid to know how to end it, so I kept writing it. And, and to FI's credit, of uh, they published it, and uh, that was that was to me that was the big dividing line between my former career uh, in show business and my career going forward. So that's 1998 until today, which is just exclusively about writing right but the truth is that what i first understood about writing remains true today which is if you don't love the process don't do it right never think about it as a way to make a living every fiction writer i know and this is probably true of you too every fiction writer i know has to teach you can't support yourself on on fiction
1: well and i i'd I'd argue also that the the CV of almost every prominent writer now is basically the same, that they didn't have a student loan, that they're coming from wealth, so you're getting the same class of people. As, as much as there's this gigantic push for diversity of gender or race, we're not seeing all that much socioeconomic diversity any longer. Whereas, especially in journalism, it was a completely blue-collar group. Exactly.
0: exactly. And that all began to change <clears throat> I think in the 60s. It was still sort of a blue-collar pursuit through the 1950s. If you look at, especially sports writing. Yeah. Uh, But eventually, there's this this sort of acceleration of of credentialism, right? Where you have to have, you know, and everybody knows this about. I don't have any degree. I've studied a lot of places and I've gone to a lot of schools, but I have a high school diploma, and that's that's it.
1: It's more than me, Jeff.
0: Well, see? <laughs> everybody's going to have their own version of this, but it's important to remember, and this is the thing I stress, especially with young writers of color and young women. It's like it doesn't all that matters is what's on the page. That's all that matters. And so now that those barriers to entry have begun to crumble, let's take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I can do now, the a nearly sixty three year old writer, is I can help lift up as many young people as I can. And so that's sort of the subtext of the whole career at this moment. I do my work for Smithsonian, which is the best job I've ever had, by an order of magnitude. But if I can, as part of that, bring along with me younger writers who aren't getting the breaks they deserve, still which mystifies but bring them along somehow create opportunities for them Mm -hmm. mentor them um that's sort of the richest version of this that i can can and happily technology has made that sort of much more possible right through social media and stuff
1: Well, I wanted I wanted to ask you though, I mean a couple a couple of points is for somebody I I can't think of another example of a writer whose background in show business came as close as yours did to being rightfully exclusively show business just because of how comfortable I'm sure you would have been as as a late night talk show host or making the kind of money you could make there to to provide for your family and everything it would have been Pretty hard to moonlight as an essayist while host. You know how the time commitment required of being a late night talk show host is immense. I've I've seen a lot of documentaries on Johnny Carson. I mean, I understand he was an obsessive reader and stuff, but like the demands of that kind of thing, you couldn't have two careers with that.
0: No, not at all. And and um, even in game shows where you're taping in batches right you yeah day uh, for three days and then you get a week off and you do five more shows so you're doing 15 shows at a, a crap um okay so here's a here's a uh i never tell anybody but, but it's, it's true so um as i say i knew merv from early days when i was starting out i did my first national late night talk show when i was 21. yikes at uh, what used to be called T.A.V., which was Merv Griffin's studio uh, in Hollywood. And so I was I was working there and I met Merv and I, I had Merv's dressing room for the couple weeks we were in there. And it's just one of those weirdnesses that, you know, first time I saw my name on a theater marquee and also hanging in the dressing room closet was one of Orson Welles' suits. Wow. The size of a car cover. It was just, you know, so it's an absurd thing. But so Merv knew me. Merv, Merv's nickname for me was the Giant Killer, hmm. uh, because I would I could go out and sort of hold my own with lots and lots and lots of different comic voices. And so there was a period uh, when Wheel of Fortune was going into syndication that Merv actually offered me that job.
1: Sajak's job.
0: Um, Yeah, do you want to host the syndicated version of Wheel of Fortune? Hmm. He had had already, and I turned it down because I had made the decision, I didn't, I wasn't in it just for the money. And so that decision, which, you know, would have paid out some sort of magnificent jackpot for decades to come for me and mine, was sort of the first step toward me hitting the eject button on the whole career. Mm. Because those are, your, those are sort of your choices in in show business is to take the work available to you. And it's, it's not all going to be Shakespeare. It's not even all going to be Noel Coward. A lot of it's going to be, hey, do you want to host Wheel of Fortune? Well, it, it, it's oh, interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, this is how I'm old... Sorry. Um, when Merv was restarting Jeopardy, mm-hmm. whatever year that was, '83, '84, yeah. he couldn't get Alex to sign a deal. Couldn't hmm. get him to do it. So Merv flew me to Hollywood. This was—I'll never forget—I was doing PM magazine in Denver, Colorado, at the time, and Merv said, "Hey, um, come on out. I want to see how you do with this." So I went out and I actually auditioned on a Saturday and Alex signed his deal that Monday.
1: Whoa, interesting. Well, your your story reminds me a little bit of, there's a very rare interview with Jack Nicholson where he talks about going up for the role of Bonanza against Michael Landon. I think they're about the same age. And Landon lands it and off Nicholson goes to, I think about nine or 10 years of complete failure as an actor, relatively speaking. Um, not landing anything, not satisfied with any of his roles. He gets Easy Rider, and he says, had I gotten what Michael Landon took, I'd be on Bonanza now and never have been on that run he was from 69 to, to the mid to, to late 70s, like maybe the greatest run any actor has ever had in Hollywood history of, of I mean, what, Chinatown, The Passenger, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so it, it is interesting to contextualize, uh, you know, that w- life is this game of incomplete information that's not declaring <laughs> whether this is a good thing to take, even though in the short term it certainly might be appealing.
0: Exactly. So a part of it is is how patient a person are you with waiting and how close do you think you are? And the, the, the my calculus at the time was, look, there are three possible slots. Mm. Maybe NBC, CBS. That's it. Really, the, the the great age of late night syndication had not even begun at that point. Uh, Arsenio sort of shuff, ushered that in the beginning of the '90s, um, and it just at some point I just I couldn't spend my career uh, waiting for somebody else to do something, waiting for somebody else to push a button. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that you're constantly being undermined by your own representatives. Because they're they're gonna say to you, brother, you gotta take that wheel of fortune job. Yeah. So you know, again, I to, to wind up now where I am, and this is why I'm the luckiest man alive. Um, was simply a process of me rejiggering my ambitions so that they aligned more symmetrically with who I actually am, and now I'm. I hate to say it, I'm just sort of completely happy all the time. <laughs> I'm be with joy at every moment because I love the process. Yeah. I, I know that's a little Pollyanna of me to say, but it's true.
1: No, I think there's a lot of truth to it, but I, I'm also interested for you is it seems very dichotomous, the impulse to be on a stage, to perform, to be seen. <laughs> to be visible, these are very contrary to the personality types that are traditionally associated with writers. And the way you write, when I read it, is you are much more in line with the perspective of writers in the sense of being a very enthused voyeur. Yeah.
0: But that, okay, so you're talking about the in the, in the, in the nature of writers, is it common that we have one foot in and one foot out? And the answer is, yes, of course. There's Mm. one foot in the world, and there's one foot out that's watching you be in the world. Right. Right? You're riding the bus. um, You go uptown, but you're also listening to all the conversations happening around you and thinking, hey, I can use that. Right. There's that one foot in, one foot out, The, the judgment that's happening while you're watching something. Well, while you're performing, that's a, you know, the, the, the two impulses are not as opposed necessarily as they might seem. Uh, but one thing I learned very early in my life as a literary journalist, which is a really suspect phrase but as, a, as a writer of nonfiction, is that I get a lot more great stuff if I fade into the wallpaper, if I recede into the background, especially if I'm trying to write a profile, um, I want to shadow you for some number of days to the point where you forget that I'm there because things you tell me in an interview are of some value, but the truth of you is in how you behave. And it's, you know, I, I love these, these sort of celebrity plumping pieces in magazines like Architectural Digest, do you really think those people are behaving as they normally do while the writer and photographer of an Architectural Digest are there? Right. They have their magnificent lives. And so what I try to do is just hang around long enough and look nondescript enough that people take no notice of me. I'm just a fact of their environment for however long. And that's gotten harder to do, frankly, because um, obviously celebrities and politicians uh, probably rightly don't want to have themselves mediated by you know a reporter. Uh, but also the, the, the old days when you could say, hey, I'm going to write a profile of Bobby Hall for Sports Illustrated, and I'm going to go to 12 dinners with him and spend a month with his family at the lake and then take four months to write the story. Nobody's got that kind of luxury anymore.
1: No, you could never do what it takes, like the Richard Ben Kramer tome of that Uh 88. You could never do anything like having that kind of access with people running for president now. That's done forever. Exactly.
0: So part of the challenge to younger writers is somehow to maintain their innocence and naivete that process can still work, that they can still be a fly on the wall, that they can still write from the perspective of fairness and neutrality, if not objectivity, which doesn't really exist. But that mechanically, there's some way to do the kind of work that you and I are talking about, Uh which is largely done after the Second World War, by the kind of folks you and I would think of as the uh, parents' of new journalism, whether it was Didion or Wolf or whomever. Sure. Uh, the, the thing that every one of those giants have in common is the quality of the reporting precedes the quality of the writing. True. You can only write with that kind of authority if you've done exceptional reporting. And that's one of the things I try to talk to young writers about is to hold off on judgment, to hold off on giving your opinion. Just gather facts, gather themes, gather the truth of what's happening around you. And don't judge it as you're taking it in. Just take it in. And then if you need to judge it, which sadly is, is sort of part of postmodern journalism, uh, that everything has to be a take and everything has to be first person. Think instead about just writing it as a series of events without necessarily trying to characterize those events. I think that one of the problems for young journalists is the hot take. Factory that social media has become, and the first person that's the only mechanical design for writing, which I think in large part is a function of uh, not just the technology, which which values sort of blogging, and it it all becomes a diary entry. But but that existed before. I mean, Norman Mailer never wrote a thing but that Norman Mailer was the leading character in it. But that sometimes it's okay to think about things in the third person, to think about things as a neutral, not necessarily omniscient writer, or to think, and, and this is a hard thing to teach, and it's a harder thing to perfect, second person, that the reader, the you, somebody to whom you're directly speaking, and you're not trying to make a case necessarily to them, except you're trying to show them a thing in the world that you saw.
1: Mm. And that can be very effective. I mean, Pauline Kael is always engaging to read in the second person, and yet I'm thinking, she doesn't know who the hell I am. She's been dead since I started reading her, and yet it's compelling. And yeah. and I'm I'm sure there's a lot more reticence to write in the third person where... Cultural appropriation now is policed far more aggressively than it's ever been. Um, The idea that the white male is the neutral perspective is being completely attacked rightfully uh, in many cases. I, I don't know. I did a book as an outsider going to Cuba for 11 years. That seems a little bit problematic now, even though I was not trying to go native You know, it wasn't Lawrence of Arabia kind of deal for me, but it certainly did have components of wanting to escape a culture that felt sterile. I mean, I think Malcolm Lowry called Vancouver a genteel Siberia. It certainly felt that way culturally, whereas Cuba, you can't look in any direction without something interesting happening and the most compelling people I've ever seen in extreme circumstances everywhere. So there's something a little predatory or parasitic there, journalistically, that I always felt a, a bit guilty about.
0: I think that's true. I think you have to, I think there's a level of self-awareness that, that must be possessed by every artist. Who am I hurting by doing this? Where's my perspective in this? And, and you really have to, you have to deconstruct yourself a little bit in order to arrive at, not objectivity, but at fairness. Yeah. And even then, as you say, there's certain there's certain lenses that are really difficult to discard uh, of a as a white male of a certain age. Um, so you have to be kind of careful of those. But at the same time, you can only do the work you do. And if the work you do gives offense to no one, it probably wasn't worth doing. Oh. At, some, at some point, everything's going to be through your sensibility as a human. So you have to arrive not in the position of neutrality to be a better writer, but in the position of empathy to be a better human. Right. That's the craft point I would make to every writer uh, who's 22 years old and is sitting, God forbid, in a workshop somewhere, which is a thing we haven't talked about, but it's why every story... In the New Yorker for the last 25 years, has essentially the same story. Well, and it's all.
1: And also, probably written for the same person.
0: Well, exactly. Again, I honor my forebears, all the work they did. Um, But I really, there's a kind of story, and I'm talking just about fiction now, there's a kind of story that winds up. in The New Yorker where it's two people on a couch exchanging ideas about how sad they are and how life hasn't quite worked out for them. And that's the exchange. The relationship doesn't work, the marriage doesn't work, the business doesn't work. And with rare exceptions, that workshop mentality over the last 30 years has produced a certain kind of fiction so don't feel bad if you don't have an MFA. Um, in fact, I think it's it probably at this point institutionally it's better to say, don't. And being part of an MFA program buys you time to do your own work. But don't spend two or three years trying to shoehorn your work into the cookie cutter outline of what's being published. Do your work. Just, you know, if you're a you're a crazy person right like a crazy person
1: right well and for you for you i wonder how much it informs i mean where we started here my middle brother who's never met his biological father and i think you you had a very memorable line about this you have in quotes biological father is a real sourball of a quali- of a qualifier at once evasive and evocative it's an expression phrase well-known to the children of post-meltdown nuclear families. Saves us a big, bad mouthful of explanation. Resolutely bloodless and having about it the astringent stink of science. It cast dad one as a lab technician. Whenever I spoke those words, I was an apple trying hard to roll myself away from the tree. Well, my brother adamantly would go not an inch toward meeting his biological father and a bunch of half-siblings. It was, and he, and he would pass it off. I have no interest. It was anything but indifference when his name was raised or the possibility was raised about meeting him. And when I read you confronting what it was like to meet your father, um, it is an endlessly reflective experience. You are staring, like the, the rear view mirror is so large as you're staring out the windshield at who this person is, and yet it's also very universal. When you had a, you had a line in there, which was so stinging to, to me and my father, where you said, um, strangely, it was the very commonality of our character that kept us apart. Humor was our shared weapon against intimacy, our defense from emotion. By reducing every question to a setup and every answer to a payoff, We ran no risk of revealing ourselves, of being hurt. Humor was our way to control people, to control ourselves. In fact, we made our careers of it. And I remember a very, very heated argument with my dad saying that his shtick of turning everything into a setup and a punchline when he was out in the world was a, a real extension of OCD socially, that he was petrified of being authentic with people. And he would always say, no, 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 it's about creating fun. I'm trying to be this Johnny Appleseed and make it fun. And I said, well, it's not fun. They don't feel fun being put off balance. I don't enjoy it as your wingman in this enterprise (laughs) Um, (laughs) at all. And when I've mentioned this to friends, of course, the appropriate rebuttal is, well, you do this too. You enjoy doing this too. And of course, I'm forced to say any criticisms or the way it, bothers me that this is my dad's survival mechanism socially. Well, it's, it's a lot of mine too. And so I wonder for you going into show business, the way you did, there was a kind of feeling I had like Godfather two of Michael trying to go into Vito's life. It's a way of exploring not just himself, but his dad in a very intimate way with what you did. And, and, I don't know if that's accurate for you. I don't know if this is a kind of canary in the coal mine for your own identity is to connect to this guy that you only meet at 17 to do yeah. it professionally to get this infusion of what he was surrounded by, that constellation of show business and the pressures of it and everything. That's a thats a very, I, I mean, I understand 100 years ago, everybody had the same job as their dad. So we're going to connect to it directly. Yeah. That's not the case so,
0: anymore. Some of it is is uh, absolutely out of the you know right out of the DSM. Some of it is, is really flawed <laughs> psychologically. Another part of it is just hey, that's the family business. Right. Talking about the father, this is the business we've chosen. So you know it it seemed to me, and I'm gonna I, and I'll bring this back to writing. At seventeen, at twenty. 25. I had a facility for this. And it seemed like a reasonable way to make some money and have some fun. And isn't that what a career is supposed to be? And I didn't really, I didn't, I hadn't gone through, I hadn't undertaken any self examination. I just, you know, I, I had fallen into it. Um, I got my first job at the NBC affiliate in Minneapolis when I was an undergrad at the University of Minnesota. And I was doing a live late night television show. Uh, so that the the log, the broadcast log would come out even at five in the morning. I would show movies. We'd just gone to 24-hour broadcasting and I'd read the Sunday Sunnies on Saturday night like LaGuardia. And so that was sort of my introduction to it. And I had a facility for it. There was no self-reflection involved. And I so I sort of I saw uh, my father in his career and I saw of myself possibly pursuing it, not so much as a method for examining the dynamic of our relationship, but just, hey, I'm funny too. Uh, Maybe it's a great way to make a living. Uh, And I pursued that for as long as it made sense to pursue it. But then the lag time between me in, say, 1975, starting out in what is going to become a show business group, and me in 1996, when he dies, and I write that piece for the time. Between those two poles is the self-reflection.
1: Oh.
0: And that's when I began to dismantle that guy because, in addition to being very funny, he was incredibly untrustworthy. Oh. And I undertook to cherry-fix the components of his character that I thought were not only valuable but were morally apt for me. I didn't want to be a pe- I didn't want to be a person people couldn't love. I didn't want to be a person people couldn't trust.
1: Mm. I wanted to be the opposite
0: of that. I also wanted, God help me, to be a serious person. Uh, a, a pose I later abandoned. But <laughs> At the time, it was sort of important to me to redirect myself and take these attributes and use them only for good, not evil. Right. So that, there was a long period of self-reflection in which I sort of deconstructed myself. When I first met him, I had no idea who I was. And by the time I wrote the piece for the Times on the occasion of his death, I knew exactly who I wanted to be. Huh. And it was, it was the work of that period of those 20 years in which I decided here's the man I want to be in the world and part of that was being a writer and part of that was understanding as F. Scott Fitzgerald taught us all so long ago money means nothing respect is everything and that's sort of what I long to as I was trying to get from the one thing to the other of being a performer and now being a writer. And what I learned, you know, within 10 or 15 years after that is none of that matters. Uh, Really sort of externally measuring yourself against other people's uh, ideas of what morality is or what ethics are or what empathy is. It doesn't get you anywhere. You just have to be sort of comfortable in your own skin.
1: I guess I just haven't seen many people um, push all their chips in the way you seem to with your dad about character being fate, and that really you're looking at genetics being fate, that you are predisposed in terms of your capacity for being something, and most of the writers that I've spoken with about what drove them were pretty unanimous that it was demons, it, it was not just cherry-picking the positive things that they wanted to pursue, but it was running like hell from the things that they were petrified of becoming.
0: Exactly. And that's very true. I mean, what are you chasing? What's chasing you is always a yeah. an image that occurs in, in sort of my psychological assessment of people I'm writing about.
1: Yeah. Well, and so why don't we veer – there was a story I wanted to talk to you about because we were yeah. doing a lot of overview, but a specific story. Well, there's two of them in particular. One is well, before I get to the story, one last general question Who were your literary heroes when you were falling in love with writing? And what were a few of the books that you loved more than any others when you were younger? When I was
0: 10 years old in my grandmother's attic, I discovered a copy of S.J. Perlman's Road to Milltown. Mm. I, I remember reading that in this you know, horribly stuffy summer attic in Ohio, and I'd never encountered anything like it. Perlman, among the great humorists of that age, Server Parker, uh, Benchley, Perlman is the less remembered, but is, and is the, the most ornate, the most elaborate, He's a comic maximalist who eventually, you know, finds... Himself being reprocessed by a stylist like Wolfe. It's easy to forget that when Tom Wolf was starting out, he was he was essentially comedic. He had come off the Herald Tribune and uh, it was comic maximalism, the use of language and the use of, and you know, all of that you can find in F.J. Perlman. So when I was a little kid, when I was just a sport, I discovered Perlman. Perlman leads me to Server and eventually to Parker. And so I I go down this sort of New Yorker wormhole for the first couple of years. Then, as I mentioned before, F. Scott Fitzgerald. We all cycle through a a Hemingway period of only imitate and then reject. Clearly, the biggest influence of cats my age who wind up in nonfiction, 60s and 70s, Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe, with sort of Norman Mailer as a chaser. Right, armies of the night, uh, Superman comes to the supermarket. Probably the most acute, well observed, beautifully written politics piece in American history.
1: Did you sorry to interrupt? Did you have a chance to meet Hunter or Tom Wolf or Richard Ben Kramer? Did you have any interactions with them?
0: I met Tom Wolf a couple times. I, Tom Wolf, one of the New York stories, Tom Wolf. Uh, used to work out at the New York Sports Club on 86th Street.
1: Okay.
0: And my Radiant Pride and I lived up on 89th and East End. We would work out at the same gym. So the very first time I met Tom Wolfe, he was dressed in what can only be described as sort of a 50s University of Virginia gymnast outfit. Right. And he's hitting himself like a madman. He's getting ropey arms, wiry. Super muscular arms, and I walked up to him in the middle of his workout, and I I, I babbled the usual sort of compliments. You you know so important to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yada yada yada, and then I want to say ten years later, he and I are on a book panel together at Duke because I've written this NASCAR book, and Wolf of course had written you know the great stock car racing piece of all time, Junior Johnson is the last American hero Yes.
1: Mm.
0: And so one of the great moments in my career was riding the shuttle bus from the venue back to where they had us staying with Tom Wolf and talking about stock car racing and writing about stock cars. Mm. Super affable guy. And the last time I saw him, I was about to do a piece for Smithsonian, uh, and so I, I saw him, he was getting a reading with Gay Talese at the New York Public Library, and this was three months before he died, and he was not in great shape. He had suffered a fall, he was he was declining. Uh, I said hi, uh, same thing with Talese, who I'd interviewed many times. And that was it. And then I, I never saw him again. I never got the piece written. But as part of that piece, I spent several days in the archives in the New York Public Library where all of Tom Wolfe's stuff is. Hmm. And several boxes of his raw material from Junior Johnson is the last American hero yet. His hmm. so he notes, his ticket stubs, all his travel stuff, but his notes. Oh. If you're a writer, you're always curious about how other people work. Mm. And to see what Tom Wolf thought was important enough to write down in his own notebook, really revelatory.
1: Well, because ostensibly this is a boxing podcast,
0: let's talk about that. I, I
1: would like to hear what it was like to do a profile on maybe the most iconic non boxer in boxing history, Mr. Don
0: King. Oh, I gotta say, I, if I have to look back across the arc of my career, that's always that piece is always going to be in my top five. Okay. Um, so I did with Don King what I do with everybody, to the extent that it's possible. I hung around enough to sort of recede into the background. I just watched Don King being Don King. First thing you have to say about Don King is he's really a nice guy. Hmm. He was an incredibly nice guy to me. Now part of that is because I'm there under the auspices of Sports Illustrated, which at the time, you know, is the is the cultural uh, Olympus of sports coverage. And so, you know, Don King not only allows me in, but sort of reveals. And reveals and reveals of himself as we go, but is sort of charming, inescapably charming. Like you know, that sort of charisma is undeniable, and it's it's electric. And he's done terrible things. And the whole point of the piece is that he is the darkness and the light of American sports. He's every terrible impulse in capitalism. And he's sort of every ambitious striver yeah. under the same rubric, right? And and he was just really super nice. We just spent, I don't know, the better part of a week, sort of, and I'm wearing my little suit and just sort of turning along in the background. And he's got a small entourage at that point. You know, that was sort of the lion in winter. It was the first of the lion in winter pieces for him, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I I had come to boxing through a fellow named W.C. Hines. I was a huge boxing fan when I was a kid, but I, I hadn't really thought to write much about it. And I wrote a profile of, of Bill Hines for SI. <clears throat> and I spent a lot of time with him. And before he died, one of the things Bill said to me is, I'd love for you to write more about boxing. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, And and sort of immediately the the Don King thing, the premise of which is it's not Don King so much as it's the Friars Club roast of Don King. And it's important to understand that one of the other primary characters is Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the MC for this uh, unbelievably Fellini-esque banquet at the Hilton in the middle of the morning. Uh, and that's sort of the, 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 the event around which everything else is horrible. But you, if you can't write a compelling piece about the most colorful villain in modern American sports, you're, you're struggling. Time to think about getting out of the business. So all I, I let sort of the momentum of Don King propel me through the piece. To see this guy who, you know, even by then, was, was well into his grandfatherhood, striding through the airport to catch the plane to Germany, is to understand the level of energy, however malevolent that this guy possessed. And it all begins to make a kind of sense that if this guy showed up at your door with a duffel bag, filled with cash, that you'd take it from him instead of the $10 million check that you might have gotten 10 months later, if at all, you're going to take the 50000 in the duffel bag he hands you now. So, yeah, I... I understood boxing as a kid who grew up in the 60s and 70s as this absolutely physically beautiful... Thing. because of Muhammad Ali I thought all boxing was as beautiful as Cassius play made it look and as he became Ali and then as the government took away the middle part, the best years of the best years of his career uh, he became this huge thing on the American horizon and that was my introduction to boxing. Oh. And that's why all heavyweight boxing to this day, to me, is a footnote to that. And kind of an ugly footnote, kind of a clumsy footnote to what, to me, was this supremely beautiful thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, well so... Bill, I was just going to say Bill Hines, who grew up as a sports writer in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, looked at Ali and saw him as a clown. Oh a loudmouth, and he thought guys like Sugar Ray, or uh, Billy Graham, or to a lesser extent cats like Ezra Charles, or even Floyd Patterson, were sort of the examples of beauty in his age, obviously Joe Lewis. Um, So I understood nothing about boxing but Muhammad Ali which means that by the time I was 20, I already had a really good acquaintance with Don King. Right. So by the time I go to write the piece, which is then 30 years later, Don King has pervaded... I mean, you're a boxing expert. Only you can understand the breadth of the influence a guy like Don King has had.
1: Well, he's a right-hand man with many, many presidents. He has no problem being a Trump supporter and... When Obama was running, he's waving the flag for Obama. There's no sense at all that there's been, like, something smuggled across one threshold into another. There's no trespassing feeling. It's seamless. And, you know, like, as an outsider to the United States, even I've been here 10 years, it always seems like the national pastime in this country has never been a sport. It's been losing its innocence, which bespeaks... A breathtaking amount of either willful ignorance or amnesia because, you know, and King perfectly exemplifies that. I'll I'll rob from my own people because wouldn't you rather have a person of color rob you than a white person? Sure you would. And yet I am the apotheosis of what the American dream is. I've killed two people. One, I stomped in the head until he died for... Forty bucks or something, um, yep. not not a shred of compunction for anything he's done. And once you hit Pater, you're golden in this country. The only immorality is to not be rich in the United States. So he's clean.
0: Exactly. So Don King is the model of what underpins uh, American ambition. Uh, for good and for real. I mean, he's, uh, he's just really, if you understand Don King, you understand the Donald Trump presidency, right? So when I, was, when I was writing it, trying to find ways to capture that is kind of a struggle, and your language has to rise to meet his. I, I think one of the failures of uh, Don King's stories prior to that had been that the you can never quite reach his level of nonsense. <laughs> right. Um, and and everybody had everybody, everybody, everybody had written about something about Don King because everybody had been at the fight of the century or everybody had been in Kinshasa. Uh, he was, you know, he was always two or three steps ahead of guys, even like George Clinton, who couldn't find in themselves the abandon necessary to correctly describe him. You can only come at him as this, he's Falstaff. You can only come at him as this over-the-top clown in Deadly Earn*. Falstaff is clever.
1: Falstaff is a very clever analogy. I mean, it's obvious now that you say it, but I haven't heard it used. Orson Welles makes Falstaff a very sympathetic guy in Chimes at Midnight. But there's another way to look at it that is very Don King.
0: Oh, exactly. And that's why that's why, oh, I just you know, and during the period of our quarantine, I'm going back and I'm watching a lot of Shakespeare and I'm, you know, reading the classics again in that speech. I know thee not, old man. Yeah. The fact that Henry's gonna walk away from this good times friend of his bespeaks how little trust he'd ever had in him. And you know, to me, sort of Don King was that. Same duality, that same hail fellow, well met, you know, at the same moment he's trying to figure out where to stick the dagger. Oh. And that to me is just profoundly American. There's, a, there's something, and again, across every culture there are villains and heroes. And, but Don King occupies such a literary spot on the American continuum of villainy. Um, here, you and I are still talking about him, and this guy hasn't made a fight of any consequence in the last twenty years. And yet, we we talk about him. I mean, who's the last guy that even had half a shot And Tavares Cloud, which is like the light heavyweight, seven years ago. That's where I met King
1: for the first time. Really? Oh yeah, Red Butler. Is that Red Butler? Because I've seen God with the wind, and if Red
0: Butler is before me, then I need to celebrate. And I was like, "What? What the hell are we doing?" Here? That's so funny. He's 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 that he's that way, and there's a genius in him for remembering and for knowing. And he he reads uh, everything written about him, and he knows where you are in the in the in the hierarchy of the business, he knows who you are. So I wrote that thing for SI, and, and I got a, um, an email from Tom Hauser, And so Tom Hauser and I became friends and a couple of years later at the Tavares Cloud, like I want to, was it at Barclays or was it at the Garden? Brooklyn. Now it's anyway. Brooklyn. Sure. Brooklyn. Okay. So which, by the way, is the best boxing venue going? Lots of fun. Happy place. Um, so at one point, Don King is downstairs in the locker room, and it's me sitting next to Tom Hauser, sitting next to Jay Kang. And Jay Kang is taking his notes on his smartphone with his thumb, which are a blur. Tom Hauser has a long yellow legal pad and a gold cross pen, which was, he is taking notes. And I am sort of sitting there. Uh, with my Steno notebook and my pilot G2. And Don King is sort of roasting all of us. Mm. Because he sort of knows who we are, and he sort of remembers all of us. And even if you loathe everything he stands for, is he worse than Mike Jacobs? Has he done more damage to the boxers and- and a guy like that, is he is he personally more reprehensible than uh, lots of other folks, journalists come in contact with, and don't bother to, to judge? But I thought that picture was interesting, because Don at that point, he was now past his Lion and Winter Point, and Jay was about to write a piece, I think it was for Grantland.
1: It was. About,
0: you know, how... It was sort of, you know, the, the haunted house version of, of Don King.
1: Oh, that's clever.
0: Yeah. Great. Hmm. The dusty potted plant.
1: Um, well, it's funny. It's, it's, it's funny you bring that up because he put me in the piece because I was one of the people who kind of doorstepped King with a camera because I wanted him in my documentary to talk about all the Cubans he was trying to bring over.
0: Yeah, okay. Now it all comes back.
1: And so I tried to catch him with a question that sounded friendly but was going to be used for a very different purpose, which was to say, is your story possible in any country but this one? And he went, you know, Red Butter is asking me about America delivering, the deliverance of delivering. And, okay, and Kang was there, who I didn't know, and all he he put into his piece was, some vaguely European journalist tried to catch King to, to get him. And so the first contact I had with Kang was to say, "How how is one to be vaguely European? What qualifies for that qualification? He loves the word vague. It's in almost every piece he writes.
0: It, it, it's also, you know, weirdly, the sort of six, six degrees of Jeff McGregor. Uh, my strategy over the years has, to, uh, has been to love everyone to the extent that I can. And there's lots of factionalism in sports writing. And there's lots of factionalism, particularly in boxing uh, writing, uh, because there are a lot of guys who uh, are crooked. There are a lot of writers who uh, are sort of on the take from a promoter. There are lots of writers who have a very narrow view of things. There are lots of writers writing for big outlets. Uh, but we all come together at to the fight and we're all going to see some events unfold in front of us without regard to the dynamic in the press section. Uh, and I and having seen, you know, lots and lots and lots of different press corps over the years, college football, pro football, NASCAR, um, arts and entertainment section of the New York Times. Uh, you know, it's very tribal. And the only thing you can do is sort of try to get your arms around everybody and know that they're doing their best. Um, and and Don King is this is this singularity. He's like this geological formation. He's the half dome of American sports. There's only one of them. And to 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 know the out of doors in America, you have to go to half dome. And to know sports in America, you have to know Don King. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, last question. Um,
1: I interviewed all day, by the way, I
0: can go as long as (laughs) you.
1: well. I'd love to do it again, but, but for, for today, um, I asked Harry Benson, who I interviewed for the chess book, who photographed everybody who's anybody in the last half of the 20th century, pretty much, um, every president going back to Eisenhower. Uh, as I was talking to him, his wife was showing me a bunch of his photographs, and there was Trump at about thirty, early thirties, and then all these other times of seeing Trump up until this was two thousand sixteen. He just been just become president. Is I said, oh wow, like you've been friendly with him for a long time. Um, at what point along the decades did you have an idea that he would run for presidency? And he said the the decades, five minutes, five minutes to know he would. If it was the biggest job, he said, you, how long do you think it took people to tell with Hitler that he wanted to become chancellor? You really think it took more than two minutes? Like whatever the biggest thing was, these people go for that. It doesn't really matter what it is. So you had a rather interesting run-in with Mr. Trump because you wrote a book review. Uh.
0: That. Um, Proudest thing. This is the Don't, thing about I'm proud. But, you, you took so, a shot okay. at him. Well, I, here's the thing, I, and he he doesn't he wouldn't remember this, and he didn't remember. This. Um, there was a transitional period when I was leaving show business, and uh, I was coming to New York to, to write. And during that two years, during that overlapping two years, say ninety. Six ninety seven. I was very. I was for a year a correspondent on a show called Fox After Breakfast, and the following year I was a correspondent for Good Morning America. So I was still on the TV.
1: Yeah.
0: And one of the things that I was good at.
1: I've heard he watches a lot of TV. Also,
0: watches. He watches a great deal of TV. But this was even weirder than that. I did a live broadcast from his penthouse in Atlantic City. Jesus. With Donald Trump, as he showed me around. And, you know, again, I, I'm this sort of inveterate why that I can't, I can't really stop myself. And so, you know, we, we had walked past, like, the ninth bathroom with a bust of Hadrian in it. And I said, what is it with rich people in all these bathrooms? Is, is there something upsetting to the bowels about having that amount of money? And he <laughs> at me. And stared at me with a look that understood, at some animal level, that I was trying to get the knife in between his ribs, mm. and he wasn't going to let it happen. So we walked on. Uh, and I ran into him again at the um, Friars Club thing because he was the host of that. Donald Trump hosting the roast of Don King. So it, you know you're doubling down on American absurdity. So. I write a book review of a wonderful collection called Character Studies by a dude who's a much better writer than I am, Mark Singer. Mark's uh, probably the best profiler going. Mark uh, writes to the New Yorker. And so I wrote about this, and one of Mark's great profiles is Donald Trump. And it's basically uh, 15,000 words on what an absurd person this is. And the series of absurdities that sort of led him to position himself as the great New York builder, when in fact he's essentially working off the same pile of dough he inherited from his father. The only projects that Donald Trump seems to have succeeded in uh, were those early on uh, that Fred helped him with, like the Hyatt and the Trump Tower and stuff like that. After... after Fred died is when Donald Trump starts to stumble through the series of bankruptcies in Atlantic city and the airline doesn't work. And anyway, so every New Yorker, every New Yorker understood Donald Trump as kind of a comic character. He's sort of a punchline to a very New York joke. So I wrote this book review about Mark's book and I mentioned that, of course, this is the defining profile of a defining New Yorker, Donald Trump. And I mentioned, I think, Mark's arch tone. And then he made a joke about how every New Yorker would gladly drop a potted plant off the Washington Square arch onto Donald Trump's incredibly complicated head or something like that. Yeah. It was a side. It was a it was a it was a, uh, a wisecrack. So two weeks pass, and there's a long letter in the letter section of the New York Times Booker. The, the gist of which is that no talent hacks like Mark Singer and I will never amount to anything, that we can only live in the shadows cast by great men like Donald Trump. Mm. So it was this very funny sort of moment of public feud that I took uh, As a source of great pride, then and still do. I I just, but it indicated to me at that point that no public mention of this guy ever went unnoticed, Mm. whether he was the one circling the item himself or whether he had a team of of scribners who who read everything and then circled his name and sent it up to his office. I thought it was. I just thought it was pretty kind of risible. I just thought it was. Who does, it? what billionaire has the time to do this? Right. Uh, so to me, it was all very funny. Also, just a an aside, I had mentioned Joseph Mitchell as a great example of a profiler in that same review, and I got a lovely note from Joseph Mitchell's daughter. And I realized that, I realized how hard it is to write a book and how hard it is to write a good book, and I stopped book reviewing right then.
1: Mm-hmm
0: i won't review anybody else's book anymore because it's i know how hard it is to write one even a bad one and so i don't i, I don't want to judge somebody else's effort but so mark Singer's like the last book review i ever wrote and it's the one that got me t- tangled up with the president of the united states
1: and you're still alive to to retell the story
0: if i am not heard from during the second term You'll know what happened. Justice finally
1: for this man who lives in the shadows of great oh. men, the greatest man.
0: It's cold. It's cold and dark in the shadows. <laughs> Let me tell you, brother, you have no access to the sunlight of greatness. Did it's you? Cold did, and dark in the shadows.
1: At this Friars Club, did you ever think, Jesus, goddamn Christ, this guy could become president?
0: No, 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 no. I uh, never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. Now I, that wasn't where my thinking uh, necessarily took me, drain I was more I was more interested in the fact that Zab Judah was driving a four hundred thousand dollar car but couldn't afford to put gas in
1: it. Oh my God, that is boxing um, to a T.
0: Isn't that though? I I was Zab, again. It's what a privilege it's been to have my career. I'm at a birthday party for Zab Judah at a fancy steakhouse in Manhattan being paid for by Don King. Of course, I've got to pay him for it. I can't accept free stuff.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But just watching the dynamic that night of this young champion who grew up in East New York, oh, talk about a hard route and a hard way up. Zab Jute this sweet kid who doesn't know a thing, just doesn't know a thing, and has only ever sort of been ill-used by his own promoters and managers. Uh-huh. And the, the juxtaposition that night of Zab Judah asking Don King if he could borrow 50 bucks for gas and Don King talking to Evander Holyfield about trying to line up another fight for him at a point at which Evander Holyfield had no point, no right uh, to put gloves on again in a professional setting, it's really, it's just sort of, it's, here's what the end of a boxing career is you've been robbed and now you got to go back out and fight again when you're too old and the steak was okay but i didn't think it was great (laughs) those are the takeaways
1: i would love to do this again but i think for today this has been fantastic thank you so much
0: thank you so much you're my hero this is great i i i'll do this anytime brother i really will Love to love to yeah, touch on some
1: other stuff, but but for today, thank you so much for this. I appreciate Jeff.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: brother. All right, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Sweby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji.